Late last month, there was a sudden and brief explosion of news reports in Russia and Ukraine about an ascendant youth movement of violence, supposedly built around the subculture of anime fans. According to vague stories in the media, fistfights were breaking out at shopping malls and other public places as part of a transnational campaign by something called PMC, or private military company, Rodin. And let me tell you, these kids sounded spooky. I'm talking long hair, talking black clothing, and a strange fascination with spiders. They get their unique fashion sense from one of the antagonist groups in the Japanese anime Hunter Hunter, which focuses on a young boy who discovers that his long-lost father is actually a world-renowned blah, 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 it doesn't matter. After a large fight in St. Petersburg led to more than 100 arrests of Rodin and anti-Rodin youths, a federal lawmaker in the state Duma even appealed publicly to Russia's interior ministry, demanding a ban on all content associated with PMC Rodin. There was mass police action in Ukraine, too, and officials in Kiev called PMC Rodin an instrument of Russian propagandists, leading an informational psychological operation to destabilize the internal situation in Ukraine. So clearly, we were dealing with something very serious. New laws were needed. National security was at stake, maybe even in more than one country. O.M.G. Actually, no. It turns out that the hysteria surrounding this youth subculture almost completely misunderstood the violence that's popped up here and there. Semantically, the first thing to grasp is that PMC, or private military company, is used facetiously when describing the Rodin group. For Russian-speaking youths, a lot of the love for the Rodin brand and iconography is apparently due to a song by a musician called Shadow Rays, where he raps about it. The subgenre of this music is called Dota Rap, and just saying that out loud makes me feel about a thousand years old. And despite all their spider-themed clothing and scary overtones, members of the Rodin fan community are actually more likely to be the targets, not the instigators, of the brawls breaking out at youth hangouts. In fact, it seems the group got its PMC nickname after its followers started fighting back against the jocks who like to bully them. The Rodin's food court adversaries have been called Ufniki, basically soccer hooligans, and Gulpniki, young angry men who like violence and are typically poor or working class. And why are these two subcultures duking it out in malls? As Russian media reports and research by Bellingcat's Eric Toller show, the whole rivalry seems to flow from painfully adolescent squabbles rooted in exchanges in online chat rooms and message boards. It's a wartime social media era, series of public fights between jocks and nerds, said one viral Telegram post in late February. Even conservative safe internet crusader Yekaterina Mizulina has criticized Russia's news media for amplifying the PMC Rodin story. While she embraces the conspiracy theory that the Ukrainian military is waging a psychological warfare operation to boost fears about Rodin inside Russia, Mizulina has acknowledged that the anime nerds are usually on the receiving end of these fights, and she's argued that the real culprit in these brawls is teenage boredom and a broad failure to engage young people constructively. Engaging young people more constructively sounds neat, but what can we say generally about youth culture in Russia? If teens there aren't mobilizing to fight for a demonic anime cult, what are they doing as their country is at war? That's the subject of today's podcast episode. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Before getting to today's show, 
I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. Medusa will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, let's get back to this week's show. As I said in my introduction, the wave of news reports about this PMC Rodin subculture was misleading in lots of ways, and much of the commentary and concern seems rooted in a poor understanding of contemporary youth culture in Russia and areas where the Russian language internet is popular. In places like the U.S. and Europe, where most of this podcast listeners live, it's very common to study Russian youth movements. Today, you don't have to look hard to find reports or essays about the authorities' Z indoctrination in elementary schools or the Kremlin's larger plans to resurrect some modern version of the Komsomol to ensure that the next generation of Russians remains loyal to the state and ready to fight against NATO's diabolical encirclement, that kind of stuff. More than a decade ago, the attention went to Nashi and other pro-Kremlin youth groups. At the same time, it's easy to find coverage and research about teenage protesters and young anti-Kremlin progressives who sometimes feature in stories as Russia's great hope for a democratic future. This dichotomy captures probably most of the popular literature out there in English about Russian youth culture. And if this is all you consume, a picture starts to form in your head where each Russian kid reaches some certain age or some state of cognizance, and they're given a choice. Are you going to ride with Putin, or will you take up the banner of democracy and fight for, I don't know, political prisoners, LGBT rights, an end to the war in Ukraine? That struggle and those politics are very real, of course. But most young people in Russia, just like most people anywhere, don't live and breathe polemics at every moment of the day, with every fiber of their being. So what about Russia's youth culture beyond the pro-Kremlin, anti-Kremlin divide? For this week's podcast episode, I put this question to two scholars to learn more about how Western academics study young people in Russia. Well, I'd say that youth researchers in Russia very much use the same methodologies as researchers in the West. So you know, sociologists would want to design surveys for young people, focus groups, in-depth interviews. Ethnography has been quite popular in Russia. That's Christina Silvan, a postdoctoral fellow in the Russia, EU's Eastern Neighborhood and Eurasia Research Program at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, where she studies authoritarian governance and social movements in the post-Soviet space. So that means when researchers enter different youth subculture communities and uh, spend a couple of months studying the interactions. But in addition to that, there's also a sort of Soviet legacy study of youth. For example, in St. Petersburg, there's like some youth researchers that are still very much sort of top-down studying young people as an object, some young people as, you know, deviations among young people. And, and they have this more I would say, non-Western and sort of Soviet-style way of approaching young people. What does that mean to study a young person as an object? Why is that, how is that different from like what the average American or European would 
expect? So what I guess in the West is quite important in youth research is that young people's own voice is heard in research and uh, young people's agency is recognized and it's sort of brought to forefront. So you would say that research is done on young people's terms, whereas this more Soviet approach would be studying young people kind of like you would be studying, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say animals in a cage, <laughs> but somehow something quite different. Do you think that the me- are the methodologies changing as a result of the current political climate? Like, is it, it's, and now it's, it's, you know, it's a lot more difficult just for foreigners to get into Russia and then to do anything that's politically sensitive, you know, is really dangerous, actually. I mean, I don't know if there are, off the top of my head, I can't think of recent cases of foreign or visiting scholars being like prosecuted for some of these like new speech crimes related to the war. But it's, it's, it's like a, it's a concern, I would imagine, that people have doing that kind of work. I know that there have, you know, scholars have come into legal trouble in the past and certainly, you know, Russian scholars have lost their jobs or there's been like reorganizations in various departments and faculties and so on as a result of like politically sensitive work. Do you see the climate in Russia affecting the kinds of methodologies that are available to scholars? Yeah, absolutely. And actually the shift started already before the war, during the COVID pandemic, when not only in Russia, but everywhere in the world, scholars would start to conduct research online. There was a whole new subfield of ethnography. So conducting ethnographic research online emerged. And of course, now there are so many hurdles because Western scholars really need to think about not endangering the participants of their studies. So there are a lot of ethical issues related to studying communities online. There are different approaches. It depends a bit on where you are rooted in the discipline. That's Felix Kovacic, a senior researcher at the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin, where he works on post-Soviet politics and European politics, focusing on the role of youth in politics, among other things. Some people would, for instance, that's what we have done a lot here at the center in Berlin, do surveys. Then you would focus more on observable outcomes and attitudes. So do people attend protests? Do they volunteer? Do they do any kind of civic engagement? Or what are their political attitudes? Whom do they trust? Uh, What are their relationships to other actors in their society, such as minority groups or other groups that are potentially socially undesirable, whether or not young people absorb that social discourse. That's one kind of macro way into the world of young people. Others take a more micro approach, classic fieldwork, graphic observation, participating in youth movements, in their meetings, kind of joining the clubs, hanging out with young people, anthropological approach. That is something that's quite frequently done for PhDs, also because simply people are usually younger when they do their PhD, so it's easier to enter the field once you're beyond <laughs> the th- threshold. That is that is more difficult. Uh-huh. But that's kind of the spectrum right. from the anthropological to the survey. And then in the middle, a method that I like quite a lot are focus groups where you bring group of young people into one room and you discuss with them following, a, depending on how you prefer it, more or less detailed questionnaire, so have a more or less structured discussion or more open where the young people are also a little bit free to um, take the discussion in the direction that they want. 
I know a lot of research that's done, and just writing in general, as far as I know, about young people in Russia has a lot to do with like memory politics and state policies, right? Like the Kremlin's, the presidential administration's efforts to mobilize the youth or to somehow steer the education and upbringing of like young people. And that seems to dominate a lot of the field. And for obvious reasons, right? It's like more politically salient. It's like better for headlines if you can tie anything to the, to Putin or to like geopolitics and so on. But I would imagine that a lot, if not most, of youth culture in Russia or anywhere for that matter is less overtly political. And maybe everything's political. I mean, it depends. I suppose you could make that argument pretty easily. But what about less inherently political youth culture in Russia? Is there is there much work done on this? And is it kind of only anthropological? Because you, you, the only way you could do it is to like go live with these people and, I don't know, like drink with them along by the fire or whatever. I mean, like, how does how 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 do we get any knowledge about that? How do we find out about it? There is a lot of research done, especially in Saint Petersburg. There's the Center for Youth Studies, led by Elena Amelchenko, and she's done a lot of studies since really the early 1990s up until the 2010s. And it's true that it seems like maybe in the early 2000s there was a really strong shift to study these political youth movements and also, you know, both pro-Kremlin and anti-Kremlin. And I'm also a representative of, of this subfield of, of youth studies. But at the same time, there is also a lot of research on so-called apolitical youth by scholars who are really not interested in politics and how young people are, are sort of being political. And is that, a, is that a reasonable distinction to make? between youth cultures, you think, or is that kind of artificial? Like there's, it's not really like there's political groups and there are not political groups. Like it's, it's messier than that or. I mean, I'm probably among those people who would say that you can find a lot of politics, even in apolitical activities, just because I would define politics as quite broadly as any activity that aims to change, change the society. But at the same time, there are a lot of subgroups where, which are very, very not interested in politics. As we know in Russia, the whole uh, idea of Putin's administration has been to depoliticize the society and especially the young people. So there are also generally lots of young people who are very active in their communities and their groups, but who are in no way interested or involved in politics. What sociologists of youth really like to study is how global processes interact with sort of local context. So this is precisely what Russian scholars or scholars of Russian youth have been working on as well. And there is some really good literature about the sort of post-Soviet youth cultures and how that differentiates with Western culture. For example, the idea that consumerism and consuming never really became a part of Russian or Ukrainian subcultures, whereas it was in a really sort of dominant position in the West. But at the same time, again, going back to the research done by Yelena Amielchenko, they did a fascinating study in the mid-2010s when they studied the youth scenes in four Russian cities, Kazan, Mahachkala, Ulyanovsk, and St. Petersburg. And they found really quite distinct features in each city. So for me, it was really surprising, for example, that in Kazan, the sort of healthy lifestyle was super popular among youth, whereas in St. Petersburg, it was like 
people who like to cycle and play board games. Board games, okay. <laughs> so there is like, but that's also their methodology. So they yeah. they sort of list board games as one of the subcultures, whereas I would not necessarily see it as a subculture. But they have a reason for for that. They argue that Russia is sort of generally has shifted away from its subculture phase, which was in the nineties, mm. to a post subculture phase of solidarities, youth solidarities, where it's not so much about you know having a very close knit group of people who listen to the same music and sort of dress somehow, I don't know, differently. But it's more like this interest-based loose grips. And that's just, the, those are the trends in the literature or that's how, that's like changes in actual self-organization among young people? They argue that it's the change in the Russian youth culture. So hmm. sort of traditional subcultures like emos or goths have been really marginalized now. And these sort of less subcultural subcultures are on the rise. I see. But it's also what's happened in the West. You know, it's it's not really possible to find, like, you know. Emos are out now. I would say that they're pretty <laughs> marginal, yeah. I have, to, I have to consult with my almost 13-year-old daughter. Because, yeah, there are times when I try to convey to her something I remember from my youth is, like, ubiquitous. And she's like, what are you talking about? That's not how, that's not how young people are now. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, then you, you kind of have access point there. There you go. There you go. I could be a yeah, do a little amateur anthropology. Um, how do how do social scientists identify? How do they, how do they like find the young people that they're then going to study? Like you mentioned that the study, you know, located like or it identified like trends in youth culture in, for instance, Kazan and Saint Petersburg. Presumably, they either somebody went there or they went online and looked for groups, but. How do you find them? Like, do you go to you go to St. Petersburg and what do you like? You look on Yandex Maps and you say like, show me the board clubs or whatever. You go to Kazan, you're like, where are the gyms? Like, do you just show up somewhere and you just start look? You look around, you're like, you look young. I'm going to talk to you and like just hear about your life. Like, what? Like at the very basic kind of like first step level, how do scholars even find the people they're going to study? Unless if you're doing survey work, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, you just like ask the people in the demographics that you're going to study. And when you've decided that the people you've asked are representative enough, you just generalize from those findings. Done. But if you're like doing anthropological work, how do you f meet the people in the first place? Well, usually you have two approaches. So either you first read the literature and then you realize that, wow, neo-Nazis are super interesting. I really <laughs> want to study them. And then you try to find find access or you can do it the other way around which means that one of your friends or acquaintances or yourself are a member of you know a, a neo-nazi group yeah <laughs> you know and then and that's how you you get the access like right. you know for me i actually happened to meet two guys who were nashi activists in the early 2010s and that's how i got into the sort of more pro-government yeah. youth you yeah. seen uh -huh. but it's like a lot depends on luck obviously okay i would say that is the way you know people scholars do and of course when we're talking about really closed communities it can be really hard to to gain access so some communities are in a way easier to study than others sure sure yeah you're not you don't get too many anthropological studies of the illuminati i imagine 
quite tempting at the moment to do research on those who are uh, supporting the Kremlin because they are so visible and it's so outrageous for most Western observers. So they would look at Yunarmia uh, and then try to assess the infiltration of the Kremlin of their youth. So that's been a popular field. Beyond that, people, of course, have also looked at kind of more subversive acts. Um, and that's what young people also, kind of, if you look back at Soviet history, right, that's what they've always been known for. I mean, remember, Stilyagi, Neformali, that's always a topic that people liked to research. And so it is also today. I mean, there are sociologists who, who take that up. I think in frequency, it's probably a bit less prominent than these perspectives on the dominant state embraced youth culture and the youth patriotic education programs and so on, but I wouldn't exclude the others. Um, and I think that's quite important to look at as also the Ryodan um, movement in a way shows, right? I mean, that's even unclear how it relates to the state. Has the internet, has that changed either the study of youth culture significantly or youth culture itself in Russia? I know a lot of these questions, it's like, well, this is like true of the whole world, right? I mean, like yeah. teenagers today on the internet are different from the teenagers who yeah, exactly. didn't have the internet. So, so you're inclined to say yes, right? Because so much has changed with the internet and it's hard to say, no, right. it hasn't. <laughs> yeah. But still, I would say that the internet might have increased or made certain trends more visible and easier. I mean, Russian youth subculture has existed and has been liberated really under Perestroika and in the early 1990s. And that's when we first saw, for instance, manga and um, Japanese anime and so on arrive in, in the country. And sure, nowadays you find like-minded people much easier via a telegram group of young people. But so that's more of a qualitative difference rather than a categorical difference compared to to the 1990s. I think that's the watershed when there was this just inpouring of foreign culture during late perestroika, right. which has then continued. And Russian youth subculture, I think, is very much just part of global developments. Yeah, Already existed in the 1990s. It's just now more yeah, at a higher speed, I would say. What about outpouring? I know that you know the the Russian language, obviously, like but it's the Russian language internet. I mean, it has reached beyond. I guess what I'm getting at is like, what's the does the internet contribute to an overlap of youth culture between places like Russia and Ukraine, and what's at play there exactly? Yes, that overlap is definitely the case when it is outside of the political. Yeah. Given you know the far-reaching rejection of Russian politics in many neighboring countries as well, as soon as it becomes political. You know, that reach is more is more difficult. But when it's something like an anime show that people like, exactly. they'll talk about it in Russian together yeah. and kind of forget the, the war, yeah, I guess. Exactly. The anime or also the environmental movements that's transnational in the Russian speaking internet communities. And like video games, like all that all that stuff. Yeah. Do you see political significance in something like an anime fan club that is like apparently I mean it has some real world applications even if it's as, even if it's limited to something like they they share a, fa a fashion sense because <laughs> like, that's what it seems to be they they yeah. like this I mean this one this one community likes spiders or whatever right so but it makes them identifiable and it, it gives them an existence outside of their computers at least I think it's a really interesting question and probably one has to say that yes in the Russian context it is political because the Russian state has tried so hard over the last 10 to 15 years to completely control the 
social um, mindset and the or the historical and social orientation of of young people that anything that deviates from that norm is provocation even if these young people they just want to to some extent hang out and have a youth subculture that is independent of the state i think the state can't help but politicize what these young people are doing and the reactions to these brawls over the last couple of days i mean they were all politicizing the issue very much right they were seen as as traitors of russia and immediately there was a language about oh that's potential foreign influence here so we might have other countries subverting our young people and then it's a quick conclusion to be drawn because young people have got such a special status in russia as as you know the future and the responsibility for generational continuity that they wear that Mm -hmm. if they behave in a way that deviates from these norms that the state sets that is a political challenge. Even if the young people themselves, I think it is centered on their community rather than aiming at being subversive right. vis-a-vis the state. And there's been similar concern in Ukraine, as far as I understand, that there, it's, there this community is viewed as, as Russian interference, because it is a Russian language-dominated affair online, I guess. And so the war has sort of politicized yeah, a lot. Absolutely. I was really surprised to see that as well. Yeah, yeah. What about, um, I know there's been a lot of research on this, but I'm, I think for, for listeners, they might not necessarily know about it. The role of soccer hooligans or f- football hooligans or, or like near football hooligans, like what is it? it's like Okola Futbolniki or something like this. Like, it seems like this is like, a, I know this is like a broad term and for all, for all I know, it just means jocks or it just means like it's skinheads or it's just kind of like aggressive men who get together and they're groups of three or more. I'm not sure exactly, but like, what can you say about the role in youth culture of these these football, soccer, hooligan people? Like, why are, they, why are they significant? What are they? Well, they're not significant in terms of size. I mean, when you walk across a Russian city, it's not like you are seeing these, um, <laughs> these hooligans in, on every corner yeah. of the street. But they have managed kind of to develop a certain cult of violence among young people and that's where social media of course comes in very handy because these videos they get huge they are hugely popular and so they they create a certain mindset of cult of aggressiveness and and brutality which these japanese videos in a way they also contribute to with this comic style and decontextualized violence i would put these hooligans football fans and so i'm in a similar corner that it's yeah, the banalization of physical harm and the celebration of strength and mm-hmm. being always up for a fight and enjoying that. Um, and that's a certain a certain mindset, which not significant as a percentage of the overall population of young people, but providing a certain characteristic, I guess, of, to the young generation. Actually, the football fandom in the Soviet Union was already quite a big thing in the 70s and 80s. So it's not like this culture appeared out of nowhere, but apparently, you know, Soviet football fans were watching how European football hooligans were, you know, chanting and disrupting the games. And then they sort of were inspired by that and started to behave the same way. And in the 1990s, there was actually a lot of pretty bad fighting going on at the stadiums. Then the authorities sort of made sure that the stadiums are more safe. But I mean, in the study that I was talking about, Amelchenko and the others found that something like 20 or 25% of young Russians are 
sort of self-identify as fanati, so as football fans. And of course, not all of them are violent. Mm -hmm. But the thing with the football fan culture is that it's sort of very masculine and not necessarily the projection of violence is important, but this projection of strength and honor of the club, right? This is why the supporters of different clubs like to fight each other. But again, you know, this is not a Russian phenomenon, which is so mm. fascinating that this is a really global thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in 2016, when there was this infamous case of Russian and English football fans fighting each other in France, then it got a really weird twist because Russian authorities were basically saying that, you know, this is a normal behavior of men yeah. who are into football. Right. So in a way, it's like, I would say that there's a, a small uh, minority of football fans that are indeed, you know, enjoy fighting. But then, okay, another thing that has to be mentioned here is how far right and racist groups were sort of incorporated to the fans in the 1990s. So mm -hmm. in Russia, you've had so many scandals of of these football fans being really racist about players who've joined the clubs from outside. So it's a weird combination of, yeah, just masculinity and uh, projection of, of power and this global football culture where it's, it's okay to get drunk and, and sort of fight each other. Uh, but then it's also had this very sort of nationalistic side to it. But that's not that's not unique to Russia. That's like a larger phenomenon. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And but what's interesting is that indeed a lot of young people are are very interested in in football and join these sort of supporters clubs. So there, if someone says they're a, a football fanat or whatever, mm. they that that doesn't that doesn't mean that they're like a skinhead that like runs around with like a a flair and like, you know, it's like starting fights. That That's just like saying like, I enjoy watching football. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I mean, right. I have friends who are... They wear the scarf much... with the colors or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And here also like, when we didn't even talk about Gopniks, but with Fanate, it's like, it's not necessarily sort of uneducated and, mm -hmm. you know, drunken, but the Fanate can be very very highly educated and very but I don't a, go know. a gopnik is like a criminal then like a no a gopnik is <laughs> do you have you heard this term no i have but i always thought it was like basically like a thug or a criminal or something yeah more like a thug but it's okay. it, i wouldn't say that a criminal it's more like i think in english there's the word ned so someone who's uneducated spends time hanging out in the neighborhood hmm. and you know, drinking, smoking, swearing, right. yeah. and but they, that's also a weird thing because Gopniks became a kind of cultural icon lately. Well, lately mm -hmm. probably means like 10, 20 years ago. I see. So it was also, it's more like a caricature, I guess. Is it like being a gang member or is there something organized about it or can you be a Gopnik all on your own? It's not really a gang member because uh -huh. this is more like a way of life, okay. if I can say, in right. a way. It's someone who resists sort of Western and non-traditional ways of life and mm. then commits petty crimes, like, you know, someone that can 
beat you up and steal your wallet for fun rather than okay in a way it's it's not really organized the early 90s are just an interesting reference point here with that moral panic we had in perestroika of young people you know turning their back to the komsomol and starting to set up their at the time subcultures revolving around computers and western music as well and that was seen as subversive and wasn't intentionally political but in the late communist period seen as overly political of course and i think there are certain continuities to to the present context with young people you know wanting to have their possibility to live their cultural identities and have that subcultural space which is in the current context being radically taken away from them by the kremlin just overly politicizing every act that you take in your private life i mean every private decision is a political one in Russia at the moment. And so I think for young people, that is particularly revolting because they want to experiment with new cultural forms, which again, as I said, it's not necessarily meant to subvert the state. It doesn't also mean that they support the state, but they might just be agnostic in a way to, to that regime and, and want to have the space. And that reminds me a bit of, of what we saw in the late 80s, early 90s. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.